You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. So a little bit of background on Hank, uh, whom I've known for some time, a very down-to-earth person. Um, he applied, and this is not generally known, he sent a letter of application to the CIA at the age of 11. <laughs> he was rejected. <laughs> or should I say not accepted? He was accepted later. He holds a BA in political science from the University of Mexico, New Mexico, and I think this is significant, spent a brief, a brief period of time as a professional rugby player in Australia. That's got to qualify you for a number of things, perhaps, perhaps leading the effort in Afghanistan being one of them. He holds a master's degree in international public policy from Johns Hopkins, and he joined the agency in 1981. And he served a variety of positions as a case officer in operations, the clandestine service, including as chief of station. Uh, he also served in the FBI as deputy chief of their international terrorism operations section, and then went back to the agency as deputy chief of the CIA's counterterrorism center. Uh, he was, and I think this is very significant uh, given his later involvement, he investigated the bombings, the Al-Qaeda bombings of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and the bombing of the coal. He later went on to lead the CIA's Afghanistan campaign, 2001 to 2002. I'm sure many of you remember that when a handful of people riding horses and carrying bags of money, you can correct that if you want to, Hank. I think that's accurate, through the Taliban back in, in Afghanistan. He then served in the State Department for two years as the coordinator of counterterrorism, and for that he received the rank of ambassador, which he now holds. So. Uh, he has now founded his own company. He's the chairman, CEO, and co-founder of the Crompton Group. So please help me welcome Ambassador Hank Crompton. Okay. Thank you for that uh, generous and uh, warm introduction. It's great being back here. Um, what a great institution, what great leadership providing this opportunity for so many people, not only American citizens, but our friends around the world to come 
and learn about spycraft, learn about intelligence. And that's why I wrote the book, to see if I could further educate and perhaps even encourage, particularly some of these uh, young citizens I see in the audience, to think about a future serving their nation, working for the CIA perhaps. Let me uh, recognize, if I may, uh, some uh, uh, friends and family. I've got Jimmy, my brother-in-law is here. Thanks for coming. Uh, Professor Burton Gerber from Georgetown University, a dear friend. I, I, I refer to him in the book. Uh, he, a great leader, leader and, and mentor uh, for me and many others in the clandestine service before he retired and, and went on to teach, but a great intellectual leader. Uh, Burton, I'm honored that you would, uh, you would come. Thanks for coming. It's good to see you. And uh, many others. I even have a, an old rugby mate that surprised me. I haven't seen for 25 years. <laughs> uh, uh, just, just don't ask him any questions, please. <laughs> so thank you all very much. Let me speak about three things fairly briefly, and I love to open it up to, to questions and, and discussion. Uh, uh, three things, three words, really. The power of words is so very important. And there are 100,000 words in this book. It took me two long years to write. It was not easy. And when I started the process, I, I researched what other authors thought, what, what worked for other authors. How, how did they write a book? It's my first, perhaps only, book. And, and during this process, I came across some great quotes, but one that sticks in my mind, and I, I forget who said it, but described writing a book as the equivalent, the mental equivalent of digging a ditch. And that I understood because I have dug a lot of ditches. The mental equivalent of digging a ditch. Except for me, it was especially challenging because I wasn't sure what direction the ditch should go. I often wasn't sure how deep or how shallow the ditch should be, so it was a constant two-year process of trying to determine that. Books, words are so important. And let me pick three words. Imagination, intelligence, and invasion. And what do those three words mean? Imagination. It takes a pretty wild imagination for a, a boy in a small town in Georgia who thinks he can work for the CIA and writes a letter. And what was truly remarkable for me was the CIA responded. Some kind-hearted person in the Central Intelligence Agency got this letter, probably a scrawl on some ruled notebook paper. I can't remember exactly what I wrote or how I wrote. But uh, I do remember the response. It was on official CIA stationery with the emblem of the compass and the eagle and said, thank you for your interest. When you grow up, please reapply. And that's exactly what I did. Age 23, I joined the CIA. Age 25, I had my first assignment overseas working undercover in Africa. That imagination I had as a boy, somehow I kept that flame burning bright, even through adolescence even to the late teens, I would drift away, but it would always, always come back and always keep exploring. And imagination without exploration is not going to get you very far. The imagination 
that was inspired by many books that I read as a, as a young man. My mother's a school teacher, taught me how to read and write at an early age and exposed me to many different books. Uh, took me to the Warren County, Georgia Library, where I read biographies and histories and became determined, if you will, to serve my nation, and particularly in the espionage service. But it wasn't just this unformed imagination there were certain bounds and there were certain objectives, a certain discipline, determination, deliberate practice, if you will, associated with this. Let me give you another example of uh, what I did in my youth. I was in grammar school. I'm not sure what grade, but I took a geography test on the states in the United States of America. I got them all correct, except I mixed up New Hampshire and Vermont. The disappointment was deep. The disgust was even deeper. I came home and said, this will never happen again. And I got a world map. And I said, I'm not only going to know all the states. I'm going to know every country on the planet. And I learned every country on the planet. I still can do that today. Because I knew I wanted to serve. I knew that I wanted to explore a world beyond Warren County, Georgia, but it was an imagination that was filled with discipline, determination, and deliberate practice. And that's one example that sticks in my mind. It was also about exploring not just the intellectual opportunities, but about the emotional challenges, the endeavors required by placing yourself in stressful environments. I left home at the age of 16. I don't necessarily advise that today. But for me, it was the right thing to do. It was time to go, time to work, try, time to complete my high school education and eventually get a college degree. But in these stressful environments, I learned a lot, not only about the world, but I learned about myself. And again, informed imagination. If you don't understand yourself, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know how you're going to respond in a stressful environment, like when I was 17 and took my first foreign trip, I walked across the bridge from El Paso to Juarez. <laughs> and then after I graduated from University of New Mexico, I picked up and spent a year traveling abroad. And, and thank you for your kind reference to me as a professional rugby player. <clears throat> to be completely honest, I tried to break into professional rugby in Australia. and had a wonderful six months there. Learned a lot about rugby league. Uh, I got through the preseason and then realized that I could make a lot more money unloading a beer off a beer truck than I could ever playing rugby. And so that's what I did. <laughs> Eventually traveled to Southeast Asia, what was at the time the Soviet Union, through Northern Europe and back to the U.S., and that's when I knew that after a year of this exploration that I truly did have not only the will but the capabilities to survive overseas and to serve my nation. And this imagination continued. How in the world could you imagine a response to 9-11 going into Afghanistan with 110 CIA officers on the ground? 
supported by 300-plus special forces, the best military might, particularly the best air power in the world. But how could you imagine that? It was informed by decades of hard work and deliberate practice along the way. Intelligence. Intelligence is not just information. It's not just data. It's specific to a need. Intelligence, for it to be that, should be accurate, should be relevant, should be timely, and this is the big one, should be actionable. If it's not any of those things, it's not intelligence, at least not worthy of the name. And that's what I learned in my 24 years serving in the clandestine service, the value of intelligence. It is particularly important when we think about relevancy. When we explore the world, there's so many questions out there, and this is the mark of a good intelligence officer, this insatiable curiosity. But again, when you think about deliberate practice and you think about discipline, in this universe of that officer's ignorance, what is relevant? What is important? It goes to my earlier point about knowing yourself. That also means knowing your ignorance. What is it you don't know? And of that, what is important? And then how do you acquire that intelligence? And how do you report that intelligence in a timely way so that the customers of intelligence can put it to use? Whether it's the President of the United States, whether it's a police officer that needs to understand the context of that threat that he's facing, or a warrior, or a diplomat, or a trade official, or many others. Now, intelligence, why is it going to be even more valuable? I think because of the growing complexity of the risk and the threats and the enemies that we face. More often than not today, when we think about threats and risk, we're not thinking about nation states. Now, sadly, you still have nation state threats, nation state war, Iran, North Korea, others. But more often than not, we're thinking about a non-state entity of some sort, a non-state actor like al-Qaeda. Or if you're in northern Nigeria, Boko Haram. In cyberspace, what about all these very sophisticated, advanced, well-funded criminal organizations that are thinking about how they can get into all of your bank accounts and are working toward that end as we speak? These are non-state threats. All the transnational challenges that we have. But when we think about intelligence, it's not only about these threats and risk and enemies. That's usually what we think about. Let's find the enemy, let's engage, and let's destroy the enemy. And we're very good at that, by the way. We're getting better and better. But that's only a piece of it. What about understanding and knowing our allies and our prospective allies and about mapping that human terrain that is so important in this increasingly complex world in this strategic landscape populated more and more by non-state actors. Some of our best allies, our most important allies, are non-state. After 9-11, when the CIA responded in concert with a great U.S. military, who are our best allies? Is there a nation-state? 
Was it NATO? No, it was the Afghan people. It was tribal leaders scattered throughout Afghanistan and the clans and tribes that followed them in the battle. Those were our best allies. In Iraq, how did General Petraeus and others turn around what was a looming catastrophic defeat in Iraq and Al-Ambar province, tribal leaders. We had plenty of allies, nation-state allies with us, but the key to that, the tribal leaders of Al-Ambar, and that's what started it. That's how the surge was able to work. It wasn't so much a surge of U.S. forces. It was really a surge of alliances among those tribal networks. And not just tribal allies. What about all the nonprofits? What about clergy and media and universities and private sector corporations and their role when we think about risk and reward, when we think about threats and opportunities? We have to calculate all of these factors when we think about the strategic landscape. Intelligence is going to become more valuable as we try to determine and isolate these threats, and then we weigh the impact of our engagement. If there is a particular enemy, how do we best engage them? Military force, covert action, diplomacy, economic sanctions? How do we harness private sector and other non-state actors in this engagement? What will be the consequences of this engagement? These are all intelligence questions. Imagination, intelligence, Invasion. After 9-11, when we read about the U.S. response, whether it's in an academic journal or newspaper article or a commentator on television, often they refer to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. It's very common. It's part of our lexicon today. It's almost reflexive. We were attacked, we counterattacked, so we invaded in a very conventional way. On December 7, 2001, when Kandahar fell, this was the last urban stronghold of the Taliban, 25% of al-Qaeda leadership had been killed. 10, 20, maybe 30,000 of the enemy lay dead across the various battlefields of that country. The Taliban were routed. Their leadership, what was left of them, were fleeing to Pakistan. We had secured more than 20 sites al-Qaeda sites that were being exploited for intelligence, including those anthrax laboratories near Kandahar. This was 7 December 2001. There were fewer than 500 Americans on the ground in Afghanistan. I talked about the value of our alliance with the Afghan people. That's how that happened. And when you ask Afghans today, those that participated in that conflict in the fall of 01, you ask them about the U.S. invasion, and they have no idea what you're talking about, particularly those tribal leaders. Put yourself in their shoes. Winter's coming on. It's November. You're surrounded by the Taliban. You have a message from a relative who's maybe 100 clicks away. He says, I've got some CIA guys here with me and special forces. And they want to come help you. They're coming tomorrow night. And you're that tribal leader, and you say, well, how many are coming? He said, maybe a dozen. He says, is that all? He said, yeah. 
Well, this tribal leader's got to make a decision. Do I put my life and the lives of my family and clan and tribe, do I put them at risk because of these dozen Americans want to drop in tomorrow night? I've got, to, I've got to have some serious information before I can make that decision. So he starts talking. He starts asking. He, they go back and forth, and they say, look, I'll consider it, but I need weapons and I need ammo. I need to be able to supply my men, but I also have to take care of, of, of my women and children. There are 2,000 here. It's cold at night. We need warm clothes. We need medicine. We need food. Um, if we can do that, then let's have a, a further discussion. The answer is yes. CIA Special Forces arrive the next night, sit down with this prospective ally, get a list of all the things that they want. Within 48 hours, this is dropping out of the sky. Between mid-October and mid-December 2001, the CIA, working with the U.S. Air Force, dropped 1.69 million pounds of supplies into Afghanistan. 110 airdrops, 41 locations. Each airdrop was tailor-made to what our Afghan ally requested. Yeah, lots of weapons and ammo, but also lots of clothes and blankets and first aid and food, anything our Afghan ally wanted. Because this is about intelligence of a different sort. It's not just data. It's empathetic understanding. I talk about mapping the human terrain. Well, that's not just mapping it. That's understanding it and responding to the needs of our allies and prospective allies. And so you're that Afghan tribal leader. It's November. You've made a life or death decision and you're looking to the future that will unfold dramatically in the coming days, if not hours, as you face the Taliban and al-Qaeda. You have switched sides. You've now joined Afghan, American allies, fellow Afghans. And you realize that you have been able to take care of your family. You can clothe them. You can feed them. You can provide them some first aid. Think of the pride, the prestige, and honor conveyed upon you by this support. And on top of that, you get to exercise, demonstrate your warrior ethos. You can take the battle to the real enemy, to Al-Qaeda. These Arabs and Chechens and Uyghurs and Pakistanis who have hijacked your country, they are the invaders. Not these dozen Americans that have dropped out of the sky and demonstrated, and this is important, demonstrated their trust in you. Talk about pride and honor. It works both ways. It was not an invasion. It was a victory based on imagination informed by deliberate practice, disciplined intelligence, and superior leadership in the field. I had the equivalent of three stars and full bird colonels leading eight-man commando teams throughout Afghanistan. I handpicked every one of them for a reason. I wanted them making the big decisions, and they did. That's why it was not an invasion.
was about imagination, it was about intelligence, a deep empathetic understanding, and an intelligence that led to this unique, deep alliance among all those non-state actors among the Afghan people. And when we think about intelligence today and into the future, that's what it's about. It's not just data. It must be for a purpose. It must be accurate, relevant, timely, and actionable. And the best intelligence is that deep intelligence that I speak of. The intelligence that builds networks that can serve as a foundation for diplomacy, economic development, and empowering people all around the world in constructive ways. And never forgetting the most important element on the battlefield. It's not your weapon. It's not your munition. What is it? Thucydides taught us this in the Peloponnesian War, that great classic. It's pride, prestige, and honor. That's an enduring truth. Intelligence must be geared to that. Our strategy, informed by intelligence, must, must never forget that. Thank you for your attention. Let me close there, and I welcome any questions you may have. Ambassador Crumpton, uh, just curious. I mean, you're absolutely right in talking about mapping the human terrain and identifying opportunities. How do you suggest, though, that those opportunities be identified within the U.S. as far as identifying those entities here that can help us overseas and maintaining awareness of that ground truth as to how we can operate with domestic actors who are not government entities? Uh, good question. There's, there's so many actors, individuals, institutions, companies that, that can uh, contribute. If we look at the Middle East in particular, just take that as an example, and we think of all the American citizens, all the recent immigrants from the Middle East that are here in the U.S., they provide great value individually and in, in communities. The understanding, how we understand this profound and fundamental change ongoing in the Middle East, and it will continue to unfold in dramatic fashion, uh, in the case of Syria, uh, horrific fashion. We've got to understand the people. The great strength of America, and there are many, is the immigrants that basically make up the fabric of our nation. We're a nation of immigrants. And by reaching out to those communities and individuals, we can learn a whole lot. And we can also build bridges. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, when I uh, deployed in Afghanistan, I first went in October, late October, early November of 01. I took some reinforcements in. The initial teams had landed there in late September. That's how fast we had responded. I went in to meet with some of the team leaders, meet with our Afghan allies, and I took some, some reinforcements along the way. I included two CIA officers, staff officers, 
Both of them were rookies. This was their first operational assignment. They had just completed the training at the farm, and they had been assigned to, to my, uh, my office, my campaign for Afghanistan. The reason was because of their unique language and cultural skills. They were Muslim Americans, and they played an extraordinary role in Afghanistan. CIA officer of the Muslim faith that can walk into any mosque and have a conversation that I could never have. You talk about mapping the human terrain and building trusted networks and recruiting intelligence sources. They did great work. And if I may elaborate a little bit, going back to the importance of words, vocabulary, we hear the word jihad tossed around in a derogatory way and we're going to fight jihadis, I cringe every time I hear that. Because I think about holy war, which is what that means. And I can't think of anything more unholy than what al-Qaeda and their allies do every day. They poisoned 100 schoolgirls in Afghanistan recently. You think holy warriors would be involved in something like that? So when I think of holy warriors, I think of those two CIA officers that deployed with me. You know, they were fighting for their faith, they were fighting for the U.S. Constitution, and, and they were fighting for America and our allies. So vocabulary is important. Reaching into the communities here is important. Another example I could relate to you is... Uh, some of the intelligence, and there's a chapter on this, National Resources Division, toward the back of the book. I had the privilege of serving as chief of that division in the clandestine service. It's where all the CIA offices are in the U.S., and the focus is on the collection of foreign intelligence that happens to be inside our borders. Immigrant communities are a wonderful ally and, and source of not only intelligence but deep understanding and bridges into uh, some of the foreign communities. It is a great strength of America, the immigrants that we have. Hope that answers your question. Okay. Right here. Ma'am, you want to come around? Okay. Oh, here we go, Mark. Thank you. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy uh, lately over the clearance process of books by uh, CIA personnel. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, since I went through that rigmarole myself for my book, I'd be curious to know uh, how well you have fared in the clearance process, uh, What, how honest was it done? I mean, there's been a lot of accus accusations. It's a disguised form of censorship. Would you please discuss that? Uh, thank you for the question. For me, it was pain-free. I, I wrote the book with a an acute sense of responsibility. I didn't want to reveal any secrets, any, any sources and methods. Um, and, and I submitted drafts repeatedly to the Publications Review Board, and within 30 days they always responded. So we're pretty quick. And moreover, of the original drafts, uh, they uh, deleted well under 5%. And then more than half of that, through discussions, they basically said they cleared. So in the totality, I'd say maybe 1%, 2% total. And in the end, there were only two points that I really disagreed with. And, and one of those, I thought, had a, a political element that was 
of greater concern than an issue of secrecy. But out of 100,000 words, I thought that was really good. And um, I, I, I compliment the staff. But I, I, I worked with them. And also, this is important, when I joined the CIA in January 1981, I signed an agreement that I would submit any manuscript to this review board for the rest of my life. I'm glad I signed the agreement, and it was made sense, and I will abide by it. That's the deal you make, and I'm happy I made it. Uh, how important was uh, SIGINT and, and NSA support to what you were doing in Afghanistan? It was terrific. I wish I could give you some specific examples. Uh, there are plenty of examples. I'm, I'm restricted in, in what I can explain, but it, it has a crucial role. And particularly, I'm going to enlarge the question so I can respond in, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way. Particularly when you took the signals intelligence and you married that with human intelligence collection and you married that with satellite imagery and then predator drone imagery, and you f basically forged all this all-source intelligence into specific targeting, into geopolitical analysis, it was essential. It not only saved lives on the battlefield, direct tactical engagements, but informed the President of the United States in areas of, of, of great uh, policy consequence. Uh, I, I should also note, and I do refer to this in the, in the book, that the NSA, they were exceedingly responsive to many requests that we had, and they detailed people to our office that were working with us, you know, day and night. And one example that I give in the book is the development of the Geospatial Information Systems, GIS. It's a software so you can have electronic mapping, which was of great importance and great value to us. Well, the NSA recalibrated some of the dissemination of their products so we could fit into that GIS mapping that we were doing. Uh, we basically, the, for the GIS, we take all this intelligence from all the different sources, and we basically position that in an image form. It's very dynamic with layer and layer upon data. So if I wanted to know enemy targets, no strike zones, where our sources were, where the mountains were, where man-made structures were, I could get any variation of that displayed on this map. And signals intelligence was a critical piece in, in building those maps, which changed second by second depending on the data coming in and the consequences. And I talk about the importance of intelligence. It's also the dissemination, the delivery of intelligence. And we took the SIGINT, the human, the imagery, folded into this GIS representation. In electronic format, we beamed it down to CENTCOM. So General Franks and his staff, they could see the same map that we had. The same thing with the Pentagon and other intelligence customers. But NSA had a, a crucial role in, in that and, and other operations. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you often hear uh, sometimes that there is a, well, not a conflict, but a, uh, a disagreement between intelligence gathering versus intelligence analysis. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could uh, shed some light on that, uh, kind of 
uh, add a little bit of color about uh, some of the frustrations you might have had with some of the analysis side of the equation. Sure, it's a, it's a constant tension, but I think that's to be expected. And the challenge is how do you make that constructive and beneficial? One way, perhaps the best example I know of, is the Counterterrorism Center itself, which was uh, uh, created after, at the time, Vice President Bush, serving under Reagan, looked at the issue of terrorism and how the U.S. government continued to drop the ball. And based on this blue ribbon panel that the vice president chaired, they came up with the notion of a counterterrorism center that would basically bind the collectors, operators such as myself, with analysts. And this was shocking at the time, put them in the same room <laughs> together. And it was a, obviously a great success. And they expanded that to a, not only the CIA, but to other elements of the U.S. government that would have both collectors and analysts that were working together in, in the center. The, the tension, and it's daily, it's, it's hourly, because the analyst, a good analyst, I promise you, is never satisfied. There's always more intelligence to collect. That picture is never complete. It never will be complete. The collector, on the other hand, is looking for that intelligence that is particularly relevant and actionable. I talked about that universe of ignorance. The intelligence officer is always aware of, or the good ones are anyway, always exploring and trying to figure out, okay, what slice of that's really important, and then how do I go deep? That's constantly in the mind of the collector. The analyst is looking for everything and then being able to fold to make analytical judgments. So those are two different perspectives, but coming together, it can produce an important product. And in our office that we established after 9-11, we had analysts in that office. We also had direct link with analysts who were briefing policymakers. One great example is Phil Mudd, who recently retired. Uh, Phil was in the Counterterrorism Center, then he worked for the FBI. He was plugged directly into our office after 9-11, and he's one of the best analysts that have come out of the CIA. And he was working with uh, policymakers on decisions about diplomacy related to Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, NATO, Russia, others. And uh, he benefited from that, but we benefited from his questions. That's another important role for the analyst is that they make collectors better. They're demanding, they're determined, and they're disciplined. And so it works both ways. Thank you. Good question. Right here. You spoke about working with the tribal leaders and all in uh, Afghanistan and all. How has the CIA and their purpose changed and their methods from when, let's say, uh, Korea, Vietnam? I think there are a lot of operations, techniques, and tradecraft, if you will, that continues. One example is, is, is counter-surveillance. No matter what environment you're in, you've got to make sure that you're not under surveillance. That's an enduring tradecraft requirement no matter where 
you may be. And there are other examples, I think, of, of, in, of, of a continuity. The changes pretty dramatic. I think in terms of communication, as one of the great examples, uh, this IT revolution that we all experience every day set a profound impact on espionage and how you communicate and where are secrets stored and how do you get to them. I relate in the book when uh, this brilliant gentleman named Jim Gosler was borrowed from Sandia Laboratories to help the CIA look at some of these IT challenges. Um, he came up with the idea of what was at the time quaintly called the computer operations course. I don't think they had even invented the word Internet yet. And somehow my name got on that list to attend that, that course. And being the most technically incompetent officer in the clandestine service, I knew this was some horrible mistake, and so I went and, and protested. I said, it doesn't make any sense, and clearly you don't want me in your class, and, and I don't want to be there. Uh, Mr. Gosler, to his credit, explained to me that all this intelligence, it's moving from that piece of paper in the safe into digital format, into disk into computers. And if you want to be a spy, a successful spy, you better figure out how to steal that. And he stressed it was, to my relief, less about technology and more about the people. The software that's written, the computers that are maintained, the person that services the Xerox, and the many, many other examples. The janitor who's got access to that fiber optic cable, those are all access points for a collection. And so Mr. Gosler reassured me that if I could just focus on that part of it, he would supply the specialists that would help, and that has revolutionized intelligence. In the Counterterrorism Center, by the time I left, I would say I probably shouldn't give a percentage, a, a large percentage of intelligence and operational success were derived from cyberspace collection. That's probably the single biggest difference. There are many others. Robotics, I could talk about the Predator drone, and I write about that, the development, the deployment of the Predator. That's just one example of robotics. There are many others. So, and maybe let me conclude on, on your question. If you look at transformative technologies, I think that's the answer to your question. I emphasize four. One is the biotechnology. Others, artificial intelligence these quantum leaps and quantum computing, robotics, and nanotechnology. Those four are changing how we spy, how we fight, and how we live. And it's having a dramatic impact on the operations of intelligence services and, and war fighters around the globe. Okay, why don't we take a couple more? How about right here? And then we'll go over to Mr. Ambassador, what you've talked about is exciting and to generate the information and have it actionable is great. Could you compare the value of this to, say, what Elizabeth I did with her spycraft five centuries ago? Um, the, the spycraft through the centuries, some of those principles are as important today as they've always been. Compartmentation is an example. Guess what? The fewer people that know a secret, the greater likelihood it's going to stay secret. I don't know if Washington, D.C. Has, has learned that lesson yet. <laughs> uh, 
but an enduring principle of spycraft, if you will. That's one example. Counter-surveillance, I mentioned, is another. And, and the third, and, and this may be counterintuitive, but it's trust with sources. And I know, given the popular media and how intelligence is often portrayed in the entertainment industry, but it's been my experience that the, the lifeblood of espionage is the human source. That's what I spent my career focused on, recruiting and securely running human source networks in all parts of the world. And that requires a degree of trust. When we dropped those teams into Afghanistan, there was a lot of trust we put in our Afghan allies. But it was based on intelligence. We had confidence that we understood our allies and prospective allies. Trust is essential because, again, it works two ways. It's not only about trusting that source. How much does that human source trust the operations officer? If they don't, they're not going to do the job. So those are some of the enduring elements of spycraft. And the reason I stress the trust issue is it's hardly ever discussed or mentioned. And I do give several examples of that in the book, and particularly one African insurgent that I, I recruited and ran for years and uh, one of the bravest men I've ever met. And uh, he trusted me with his life, and I trusted him with mine. And uh, tragically, he was killed years later in a CIA operation. And I, I, I write about this at some length in the book. I, I really miss him. I not only trusted that guy, I loved him. He was a great guy. This is switching to economics, but do you feel in a position to make a 10-year estimate out as to how successfully the Afghanistan economy, knowing their level of education, of property rights, and those kind of things, can advance out of what is certainly third world status? Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world. Half of the economy is based on narcotics trafficking. It's a feckless, corrupt government. The future's not bright. Moreover, they're sandwiched between Pakistan and Iran. It's a rough neighborhood. It's not a nation state as, as we think of nation states. It really is a collection of tribal alliances to some degree. We have lost more than 3,000 coalition troops there in the last decade. We're currently spending $2 billion a week. That's a lot of blood and treasure we've invested. The upside is that al-Qaeda no longer has a safe haven in Afghanistan, a safe haven from which they could launch another 9-11. We've got more work to do in Pakistan. I'm worried about Yemen, Somalia, northern Nigeria, northern Mali. But the success of denying Afghanistan to al-Qaeda is pretty important. Because if they do reestablish a safe haven there or anywhere, for that matter, they can launch an attack here on the homeland. The last three attacks or attempted attacks on U.S.-bound aircraft all came out of Yemen. Why? You look at expanded al-Qaeda safe haven. 
taking advantage of the civil conflict in Yemen, particularly Abyan province in the south. It's a key issue. To address your question about the future of Afghanistan, though, 10 years from now, and a lot does depend on Pakistan, despite my pessimism, there's some very positive things, particularly when you project 10 years out. Perhaps the most important is in 2001, the number of girls attending school in Afghanistan was basically zero. Today, more than three million girls go to school every day in Afghanistan. And anywhere you see the empowerment of women, that's a big plus if you're looking at political stability. And 10 years from now, those girls are going to be 20, 25 years old. They're already challenging the Taliban and illiberal agendas in Afghanistan as we speak. There are lots of really good examples of women leaders emerging and challenging the status quo. I think that trend is going to continue. It will be uneven, but that's very positive. The other thing I would like to stress, and I'd like to see more of it, is the introduction of greater power generation, electricity throughout the country. In 2001, only 6% of the people were on the electric grid. Today, it's probably not much better. Now, a lot of things I don't understand, and this is another, with all the solar intensity and the wind and the bio in these Afghan villages, why in the world we have not harnessed renewable energy for locally generated power, I do not know. It's not that expensive, particularly when you think about $2 billion a week in military expenditures. And why is that so strategically important? Well, when you get electricity, what do you do? First thing you do is you have lights. So you've got security so your kids can study at night. And then you get heat. It gets cold at night in parts of Afghanistan, really cold. But what's the next thing you do after you take care of heat and light? What do you, what do you want to do? What's, what's, this, what's this human need that transcends any culture? There you go, telephone, television. You want to communicate. Bingo. Well, what happens, given this IT revolution I talked about, when you've got power generation and you can connect to that satellite? You're bringing in the rest of the world into those villages, whether it's education, whether it's health care, and what does that do at a strategic level? You're not, you're not just attacking the enemy. You're attacking the enemy strategy. Sun Tzu, the art of war. You map the terrain, you identify the enemy, and you identify his strategy, and that's what you attack. And that's how you get to 10-year success. The last thing the Taliban and al-Qaeda want are 20 years of Oprah reruns. That's how you think about the future. You educate women. You bring liberal values, liberal thought, opportunities of all sorts into these local villages. It's not just a mirror image of let's build a ministry of interior and then you know, teach them how to arrest people. So despite some major concerns that I outlined, I've got some faith in the Afghan people. They're strong, they're resilient, and they will go to great extremes to educate their children, including their girls. 
So don't give up on them. I, I haven't. Let me conclude, if I may, two more minutes. Got the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> no, you've all been very patient and great questions. Uh, this really underscores your point, sir, and it's, it's, a, it's an, a, a key question that we should think about when we think of strategy. It's not the next election. It's not the next quarter. It's 10 years out. How do you have an enduring victory? And because of this great opportunity that we missed in 02 to 05 in Afghanistan when it was relatively stable and we were in Iraq, I can talk about that for a while if you want. But we did not project non-military power, as I described. 02 to 05 is a huge opportunity for the U.S. And, and the world community to secure the initial success in 01, 02. Because we did not do that, here we are 10 years later with 130,000 U.S. and coalition troops deployed throughout the country. Let me relate a story, if I may, because I think for me it was an important lesson. And I've often cited this story in various talks that I give, and I'll continue to cite it because it goes to the initial points I made about the value of deep intelligence. Ahmed Shah Massoud, he was known as the Lion of the Panjashir because the Soviets were never able to capture and hold the Panjashir Valley. That was his home. The Panjashir Valley, just north of Kabul, north of the Shamali Plains. Today, when you drive along that narrow valley road. It's just littered with Soviet armored vehicles. Battle after battle, they never could hold it. He was a great warrior, great strategist. Some of you may also recall that al-Qaeda knew his value to the United States government, and al-Qaeda assassinated him two days before 9-11. Two al-Qaeda operatives posing as journalists. They had the explosive device embedded in the camera. They detonated that, and they killed him two days before 9-11. They knew his importance. They knew that we would respond, and they wanted him out of the equation. About 18 months before that, however, I was having a meeting with Ahmed Shah Massoud. Tall man, tough, lean had great deep wrinkles in his face, burnt by the wind and the sun, had a very easy, graceful, even gracious manner about him, had a good sense of humor too. We had spent a good part of that morning in this small house by a fire, drinking sweet hot tea, eating nuts, dried fruit. It was raining and cold outside. And uh, just a handful of us there. I was with another CIA officer. He had about four men with him, including a translator. And we had spent the last couple hours talking about our joint intelligence operations inside of Afghanistan. The teams that we were sending were meeting with his men, and they were deploying throughout, collecting intelligence of all sorts, using different techniques, engaged in some very limited covert action. So we had a lot to talk about. At the end of this discussion, Massoud very polite. He said, may I ask of you one more question? I said, certainly. He said, your government, and I have such admiration for the United States of America and your leaders, but your government, do, do your leaders care more about al-Qaeda and bin Laden, or do you care more about the people of Afghanistan? And I said, we care more about al-Qaeda. 
he gave me a, a sad smile and a nod. He, he knew the answer to this. I mean, out of all the U.S. government, the only people Masood was talking to was me or my men. And our mission was very specific. It was very narrow. It was al-Qaeda. There was no strategy. There was no policy related to Afghanistan. The people, the nation of Afghanistan. He was acutely aware of this. I think he asked me the question for a couple of reasons. One, to see if I had enough courage to tell him the truth. <laughs> and secondly, as good leaders do, he was teaching me a lesson. And this was one tough warrior. He had killed a lot of the enemy. Had no problem with, with that at all. But he was basically telling me you've got to do both. You've got to find and engage the enemy sometimes without mercy, but you've also got to take care of the people. That's how you have an enduring victory. And when we think about the future of war, we think about this complex global environment, and we think about the human terrain, we think about the strategic landscape and all the different actors, enemies and friends and allies and all those in between. We think about the projection of power, the military power, covert action. It's critical. It protects our country, but that's only a part of it. How do we secure those victories? How do we harness the liberal values, the liberal institutions? How do we harness all that's so good in America, working with our allies? And how do we project that kind of power? How do we bring education and health care to the rest of the world? And I know you say, you can't do it all. Well, of course not. But you can designate those parts of the world that are of great strategic value. You want a list? South Asia, Yemen, Somalia, northern Nigeria, northern Mali, if you're talking about al-Qaeda. But when you think about strategy in the future, if you would, think about intelligence. Think about deep intelligence and empathetic understanding. And think about that lesson from Masood. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.